What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Nick Kenner, founder and CEO of Just Salad, a fast casual salad chain on a mission to unlock everyday health and sustainability. In this episode, we'll chat about technology's role when it comes to nutrition, automation, and retention, its reusable bowl program, and the white space opportunity for salad to still share away from fast food. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. All right, well, Nick, uh, it's awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for making the time. Um, I'd love for you to just start off by telling us the founding story of Just Salad, how many locations you're at today, where you and where you've expanded to. Yeah, sure. So, and thank you for having me. So, started in 2006. I was working in finance after college. Wanted to do something else. Wasn't quite sure. Had always been entrepreneurial, and um, I was junior uh, associate on a trading floor. Uh, we all took turns ordering lunch for everyone. Seamless Web had just come out, and um, me and the other 24-year-olds were all using Seamless Web. I took the lunch order that day, and everyone pretty much wanted salad. Um, and it was 50 very different people that wanted salad. And uh, that was kind of uh, an epiphany for me, and I felt that at that point, if someone uh, just did salad but did it really well, uh, there'd be a market and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been obviously a, a crazy journey since then. There was no, at that time in Midtown, there was no competitive dynamics. Um, and so when we opened our first location in Midtown, uh, we had a line out the door down the block and it was, um, you know, became the start of um, learning the challenges of operations and logistics and uh, the rest of the restaurant industry. And so how many now, 2023, how many stores? Today we have um, one in the year with about 80 locations. Wow. And how many states? It's about, uh, let's see, it's now Illinois, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, uh, Florida, North Carolina, so seven. Wow. And so when wh- you think about the salad landscape, it's obviously evolved a lot in the those past 17 years, but um, what do you think differentiates just salad from a lot of those those other brand names that we all know yeah i mean look i think number one i think we have the, the best product best operations team and the best uh, competitive price point um so you know we're a little old school in how we think about it we're very focused on just having a great product uh, at a really good price and really good operations and, and service. And I think that's I think that does differentiate um, us from others um, in terms of product and operations and price point. And I think um, we've had a dedication to sustainability since day one that's also different than um, a lot of others. Got it. And then I guess talk about like maybe the, the culinary approach and the breadth of the menu. You, you... You do a lot um, within your boxes, so I'm just curious to talk about the different categories you cover. Yeah, so we started as as just salad, and we evolved over the years um, to add different product lines like wraps, smoothies, warm bowls, avocado toast. And 
you know, we've been around for almost 17 years. So those all happen organically over the years. And essentially what Just Salad is about is serving um, healthy, great tasting food fast. And all those formats are different ways of eating healthy, fast, um, and affordable. And so there's things that come along like over the years, whether it's pokey or acai, that are seem interesting, but we don't do for various reasons because it's either going to be too expensive for a customer or it's truly not healthy uh, or we can't serve it um, in an appropriate time frame. And then if you think about the day parts that you guys like serve, is breakfast becoming one of those or is it just lunch and kind of just dinner? Just lunch and dinner for now. Okay. And then let's talk about, you know, I guess historically it's been very urban and office centric, but obviously with COVID, a lot of chains have focused on kind of the suburban customer. I'd love to, for you to talk a little bit about your footprint today and then how that kind of influences how people are ordering. Yeah, I mean, um, most people associate just salad with office, but actually um, at this point, about 40% of our real estate portfolio is tied to office, 60% um, is residential. Of that 60%, a, a lot of it is suburban, but there's also a, a, a decent component of, of what I'd call urban resi, um, you know, whether that's um, Brooklyn or Hoboken or the Upper East Side or urban areas where resi is, is prominent, it's also a great market for us. But um, ultimately, I, I, I believe the salad category is like the first fast food category creation in decades since coffee in the 70s, 80s. And I do think that the white space is such that we could be anywhere where traditional um, fast food is over time. So I don't think it has to be urban or resi or, you know, more tourist um, areas or mall areas. I think I think it kind of fits into most of all these different profiles and dynamics. And then like as far as, you know, how you view the customer kind of ordering with you, whether they're, you know, coming into the store, talking to one of your attendee, uh, uh, one of your staff members, uh, and then walking through the line versus ordering on your app uh, and coming in to pick it up or getting it delivered. How does that kind of, how has that behavior changed based on the markets that you're playing in? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, at least to me, um, Suburban and resi is just as digital oriented as urban office. Um, so, uh, in fact, in, in the case of Florida, where we have 17 restaurants across the state in pretty diverse areas, over uh, 50% is digital. It was overwhelmingly most of that digital coming from pickup. So it, it doesn't really change much, to be honest, in terms of um, the digital mix and you know, how we market to the customer, I think to an extent, there's a flywheel effect between digital and in-store. I've totally seen so a, a bunch of situations where we have customers discover us on third party, whether that's Uber Eats or DoorDash, and they'll walk into the restaurant to kind of check out this place they've been ordering from on delivery and third party, and vice versa, where a lot of our in-store customers after coming two or three times will convert to native app uh, or native digital pickup customers. And so we want to do the best job we can on all those platforms, all those formats. And how do you, how does your store kind of format um, kind of differ from those urban environments versus, 
you know, an area of Florida where you might, you might want more seating or, or less seating? Yeah. Um, every area that we go into, we decide early on whether, you know, seating is important or not. Um, and then that will dictate the amount of square feet that we need in that area. So, you know, for example, if we're doing an office location in New York City or Chicago or Boston, you know, 1,800 square feet might be enough, but if we are looking for seating, it has to be 2,500 square feet. Um, so you need a little bit more size, but in terms of how the digital is executed, it's pretty consistent in both different types of markets. And uh, the end result is large pickup stations in all these different types of um, platforms. And then how, how big is your third party versus your first party? Like, are you, yeah. And how are you able to like wean, wean those customers off the third party? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Na native is definitely our, our biggest digital channel. Um, and our app as of this year is now outperforming our, our web and, um, but third party is still a significant business, um, for us and, Look, we, we definitely market our native web and app to our third-party customers, but to an extent have come to the conclusion that most people at this point who are ordering on third-party are doing so because they're not necessarily 100% sure what they want, and they go onto that ecosystem as a customer, and they're looking for inspiration or ideas and they're probably gonna order within that ecosystem, whether it's Uber Eats, DoorDash, or Grub. So we're not, we don't spend a lot of time anymore, honestly, trying to convert to native. We just feel like most customers at this point, once they are happy with the quality, price point, um, consistent service that they'll uh, naturally gravitate over towards native. And we're seeing that. Our app um, and web are our biggest growth channels by far. So I do think the customer is like now evolved and growing up with like the current third party dynamics and and are now like kind of naturally finding brands that they think are worthwhile or they frequent enough and they're doing it naturally without advertising. Right. You know, having that spot on their coveted home screen of their, you know, the six fast casuals that they cycle between. Yeah, but but by the way, coffee and salad are are two very repeat. You know, they're 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 ones that are are kind of staples for people. That um, I think, like if you look at the burger category, they draw draw from a much wider um, customer base, but they actually don't have the type of frequency that um, just salad or others in the salad category. Um, would have. And so I think that lends itself well towards getting people to download the app. Interesting. Um, I want to, I want to revisit that cause I think that's really interesting. Uh, let's talk, can you share anything about your loyalty? Um, how you've kind of, how that's kind of evolved and maybe who's powering that? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I don't think, I think just out does a really good job in a lot of different places. I don't think loyalty's one of them today. So I'm not sure I have a lot to uh, teach on that <laughs> behind, behind the scenes. We're really working hard to uh, revamp that. But I do think, and, and frankly, like I think we've been using um, level up for a while and I believe they're sunsetting that technology uh, anyway. So I think we're in the process 
of um, finding a new loyalty provider um, and upping that that game. Now, I was just going to say there's a lot of people who probably listen to this and try to hit you up after this to, to help you. But uh, so there's a, we, a lot of food tech companies listening. So, yeah, well, I think it's a it's a wide open space uh, to some extent as we're as we're seeing. It doesn't seem like there's a clear um, winner on the loyalty tech side today. Right. And we were just uh, at a hungry summit, which we just finished last week. We had uh, Ben Leventhal Blackbird, who is. You know, I wouldn't say building his new loyalty platform for for restaurant chains like yourself, but he's going more SMB, middle market, um, you know, longer tail uh, of restaurants. But who knows? So, so that's that's a good segue to the next part. I just want you know, you and I have chatted over the years because I think you've kept an ear to the ground with the latest technology and have kicked the tires on a couple different things, some things that. We'll keep in the vaults and th- some things maybe you can share about, but I guess we, we, can, share, we can share the first time we, how we got in touch the first time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, yeah, the, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Let's, let's share that. Yeah. And, and, and then let's talk about the different areas within your business that where you think the tech has an opportunity, but yeah, you, you can tell the story. <laughs> no, I, I just remember I, I was, when you uh, hit me up to this podcast, I was like, how did I, how did Matt and I get in touch? Um, and then I remember back in 2019, I got back uh, from visiting an automation, robotic automation company uh, based at MIT. And I got a call the next day from you. And I don't even, <laughs> you guys like had just launched a website and it's like, hey, it's Matt. I'm from this place, Hungary. And um, <laughs> I'm with the media and I'd like to learn more about what you're doing um, with this automation company. And I was just like, what? How did you, how did you know that? How do you even, how do you find that out? Um, and then, um, yeah. And then that we, we talked a lot about restaurant technology from there. That's funny. Yeah. Someone tipped me to that. You, I think the fact that you were, said that you were piloting or maybe you were in their deck. You must have met with this company and I got their deck. Yes. And I was like, oh, I think that's what happened. And, and obviously you probably didn't ink anything, but you know how these, uh, these companies are where they're they're bragging already before they've signed the contract which, about which who I don't they're in care. conversation I want, <laughs> I want them all to try and, you know, for me, I hope they all succeed because it's just one more option to have um, as a restaurant operator. Um, but as of now, um, you know, four years later, <laughs> no um, no automation company is has really, you know, gotten um, mass appeal from the restaurant community just yet. Do you think that there's a potential for that to happen? Or do you think it's so bespoke that it's going to be like kind of one company to one, you know, one to one, essentially, like everyone builds their own robot? I, I do think there will be um, some that make it. And I don't think it'll be one to one. I don't think most restaurant companies, I mean, you could look at uh, Sweetgreen is obviously pretty unique in their ability uh, to bring something to market. But I mean, even Chipotle is using hyphen, right? They're not doing it themselves. So um, I do think overwhelmingly automation will happen. It's going to be slower than people think, but it will happen with some dominant tech players, not restaurants pushing it forward, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's <clears throat> outside their core wheelhouse. And, 
Yeah, it's an, it's a whole different language. Um, but so, what are you, I think you and I first when you and I first spoke, you had mentioned that you acquired uh, a nutrition data startup, um, and I found that really interesting. Can you chat about that story of how you yeah. got involved with that company? Well, actually, um, it, we incubated. We didn't acquire it. So. Um, our chief information officer, who was like our third hire at Just Salad, um, a really, really smart guy uh, named Matt Silverman, um, after working a couple of years at Just Salad, he said he wanted to um, start a company that basically verified nutrition data. And he was going to get um, verified nutrition data by offering restaurant nutrition calculators at discounted pricing. Um, and so, uh, I immediately fell in love with the idea and just Salad decided, uh, to incubate, um, the startup and he never had to raise capital again because he ended up, um, selling a lot of nutrition calculators to a lot of restaurants and then Google, um, Samsung, Fitbit, all, all these brands that use nutrition data all the time they were licensing his um, access to his API for his verified nutrition data from restaurants. And then he got verified nutrition data from CPGs. And all of a sudden he was the only person out there with verified nutrition um, data. And it's kind of come full circle. He actually, he sold the company about five or six years ago. I'm sorry, like three or four years ago. And um, he actually started as our chief technology officer um, a couple of weeks ago and he's back with, with the company after all this time. Very cool. And so I'm assuming that's like basically mapping dishes to certain macronutrients and, and trying to essentially parsing that, that whole web out. It was more, um, par partly that, but I think where it got the most use is if someone went in to, um, Google and, uh, Google, Chipotle chicken burrito. There's that square mm -hmm. at the top of the search that shows up and it says like 1200 calories or whatever it is. And that information was coming from his API. And wow. so it was on a very simple level, just collecting all the nutrition data direct from the source and putting it in one API and letting anyone use it how they want to. Hmm. And so we use it even today, um, like on our app, the Just Salad app, we have a a nutrition calculator that's custom. So as you build your own salad or make changes to your um, Tokyo Super Greens or, or Crispy Chicken Poblano and you take out the chicken, it removes calories in real time, which is really cool for our customers. And then are you able to update the protein count and, you know, yeah, fat, no, the pro it's, it's literally the nutritional facts labor. So protein, fiber, um, carbohydrates, calories, all updates in real time. That's really cool. And I, you know, one of the things I've, I've said a lot is that personalized nutrition is one of the, you know, I think one of the brightest spots within food technology, uh, being able to take, you know, wearable data, uh, my gut microbiome tests, uh, CGM on my arm, uh, take all this, these different data points and synthesize that into some sort of tailored recommendation for what I, Matt should be having today. And being able to tap into a menu like Just Salad with this kind of uh, real-time date nutrition data based on how you customize the bowl or the salad or the dish, 
is basically how that recommendation is going to get tailored to me eventually. Yeah, which is powerful for the consumer. And I think we're in a good position because there's so much customization for what we do. I think we're in a good position to, you know, help the consumer achieve their very specific goals. So, so what else excites you? You know, we've obviously talking a lot, I uh, talked um, about automation, but what, what else excites you when it comes to opportunities for tech within your business? And, um, and then maybe you can talk about investments you've made in this space. Yeah. I mean, what else? Excites, I mean, look, automation is extremely interesting. I think I wouldn't say it excites me, but we're spending obviously a lot of time on, on our tech stack and unifying all our data. I think that's a huge challenge right now. And I think, you know, the point of sale obviously is like the core piece of um, technology for most restaurant chains. And obviously Toast has done a very good job, but there seems to be other providers that are percolating that can be potentially more helpful on the tech stack. And I think unifying all digital sales from you know, and Olo obviously has done this on the digital side, but then it's not as seamlessly sometimes connected with the, you know, front of the house point of sale. So I think that whole process is, um, I, again, not ex necessarily exciting, but very necessary. And then in terms of investments, I mean, you know, I haven't made many, to be honest, it's, it's really NutritionX. And um, we made one in a company called Survey that did not go uh, as well, but it was a, it was a great product. Um, and it was more about guest feedback. And as a restaurant operator, uh, I, I, I am religious about getting guest feedback. I, I read almost every single Yelp and Google review across every single store. And, um, this was a form of technology consolidating it in one place and then sometimes offering the consumer discount, um, to place that review in the first place. But yeah, that, that's for the most part on my end, what I'm saying. And then when it comes to, you know, every operator is talking about the rising cost of food and inflation. There's been a lot of technology popping up like dynamic pricing. Obviously, automation um, is one of the key, you know, solutions that's aiming to lower the cost of labor. But yeah, I'm curious if you could talk about what you've, what you've done as a business to kind of address that. And then, you know, other roles of other potential solutions to to combat that as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I, the dynamic pricing for what we do is very interesting because in, uh, like I said, 40% of our real estate portfolio is um, urban office. And, you know, there's such a lunch rush that takes place that, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it, premium pricing in that situation makes sense and rewarding those who come in off that peak hours makes sense. So I do think that's something interesting, but optically quite difficult to pull off with the customer. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, ra we raised pricing a lot in 2021 and 2022. We've seen both labor and food costs inflation subside this year. So we really haven't had to raise pricing this year all that much, but you know, ultimately for the most part, it gets passed on uh, to the consumer. And luckily so far this year, we really haven't had to pass on uh, much. So I think beyond taking price, it's just trying to run your businesses 
as well as possible so you don't have to take um, price. And that's something we've always been focused on. And as far as like how you're setting up your kitchen, your prep and, and how kind of the whole day-to-day operation goes, what, you know, are you, have you centralized any of the production? Uh, have you thought about, you know, automating more things when it comes to um, prep, et cetera? Yeah, we've actually decentralized everything that we've ever centralized for the most part at this point. Um, you know, we had a commissary earlier on in our history, and um, I think it's worse from a fruit quality perspective. Um, it was quite difficult to execute, and it added cost versus reducing it. So at this point, everything is done in-house um, from the marinating uh, and, and roasting of our proteins. All our produce is cut fresh in-house. That's another shortcut that um, we don't believe in uh, from a quality perspective is having pre-cut um, produce. We'd love to make our dressings in a factory, but they just don't taste as good. Um, and so that's something we also make, make fresh because um, often you have to put preservatives in uh, when they're made off-site. So I think from a food perspective, you know, we product is first and they can't be compromised. And I think not taking those shortcuts is a reason why we continue to grow sales a decent amount. And on the automation side, you know, I think we try and use the best restaurant equipment um, we can. So we believe like, for example, our, our double decker ovens are um, rationale, which is quite expensive, but we feel like um, it's the best technology in the convection oven space. And so, you know, Whatever the restaurant equipment is, we look to get the best of the best, and it usually pays for itself in terms of um, speed and reliability. Having studied the automation within your category and what you know your competition's doing, like what have you learned from kind of the early things we've seen from the likes of Sweetgreen and Chipotle, and what are your kind of uh, requirements you think for just salad? You know, what would make you jump at the next potential, uh, what would be your RFP yeah. for the industry to, to deliver for you? Yeah, I mean, look, I like you sent a, an email out to all your subscribers on on your visit um, to Sweet Grain, <laughs> and um, when I visit our Chicago stores, I went by as well, and I thought um, I, I thought it was pretty impressive, and I think uh, and it seemed to work very well. I don't know, I'm, I'd be the last person to know how much labor it's actually saving, how much the fixed cost is on it. But if those, if the return is, is truly good, I think it's, it's, a, it's pretty powerful. That being said, the size of the machine, um, in that case that Sweetgreen was using, it's huge. It's really big. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a big issue from a development perspective. Real estate's tight, it's not easy. Um, to fit in as is. So with that could could prove quite difficult from a retrofit uh, or going forward basis. Uh, but everything else seems to, for me, long-term, you know, I'm sure there's kinks, but long-term it seems pretty, pretty good. Chipotle and the hyphen model, I think seems very interesting given the size of the unit. Um, it seems to fit right into a typical topping unit. And we've obviously spoken a lot with um, the team at Hyphen, and I think they do a really good job as well. So 
I think to answer your question, it, it comes, it's, it's pretty simple for us. Like we're waiting for a machine that we can invest in, whether it's a fixed cost or an annual cost, where we're gonna save more money on labor than the cost of the machine itself, and that it will fit in to our operations somewhat seamlessly. And so I think Hyphen seems to be close. There are others too that are close, but um, it's it's not quite quite there, in my opinion. You said the hyphen's not quite there yet, or? Well, in all fairness, I, I don't. I would say um, Chipotle would be better to comment on um, whether they think they're there or not, as they're using them day to day, and we're we're not. But from what I can see. You'll know when Hyphen's there because Chipotle will be rolling it out very aggressively. Right. Sure. And that probably, I, hopefully that will happen soon. I agree. Um, yeah, I think, I think what you said about, you know, Chipotle, uh, the sweet green size of the automation is, is bang on. Uh, I, I, I would estimate that it's about 300 square feet and, um, the costs that I've heard were, pretty high so it's a decent you know it's a it's definitely a, a longer payback i think given that cost um but the you know like you, the question for me is like you said like can it can it really retrofit itself into the existing footprint or do they have to actually purpose build new stores to to house this really big footprint so yeah, I'm I'm keeping my eyes on the next location. Actually, it's supposed to happen. That's supposed to have it in Southern California by the end of the year. Actually, did a little drive-by uh, investigative work to try to figure that out, and uh, still have more questions than answers. But you'll be did the you, first to did know. Did you try and like sneak in on uh, as a as a vendor or something? <laughs> like, hey, your, no, your produce just orders. I was driving back from San Diego and I had to go to the bathroom, so I just decided to go over there. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, and then I just, yeah, walked in. I was like, is there enough space in here? Or, like, are they going to bust down the walls of this store and, to get it to work? And it, it didn't seem like it was actually going to be easily retrofit from my just walking in and walking out. Um, yeah. I mean, at the same time, I don't think for just salad retrofitting isn't necessarily the most important thing because you know today we have almost 80 locations but um you know we hope to have double that in the next three years so um wow. if you can get it on a go even just a going forward basis on a growing chain that's pretty impactful uh, on that thread of expansion i mean what do you think is this kind of white space opportunity that we keep you keep circling around with salad as we talk about the frequency of it and having it at parity with fast food which is so much cheaper and less healthy like it what are the kind of secular trends that you're seeing that are going to make this so ubiquitous yeah i mean I, I, at this point um we're not that much more expensive than traditional fast food you know it's it's we're basically in new york on par with a lot and then like take florida for example, average price is somewhere around, menu price is around $12. So, you know, I think it's slightly more expensive, no doubt, but I think we're seeing obviously in these markets, huge success of people willing to spend 12 something for a main item versus maybe um, eight, nine, 10. And so, you know, with that, 
price competitiveness um, comes white space because there's a huge demand for what we're doing. And I, and I genuinely think, I do think there are thousands of potential units for us. Um, if you look at, I think Chipotle has gone past 4,000 units, um, well past 4,000, which has a similar price point. Um, Panera, you know, is, is probably right around 2,000. Panda Express, also company owned, over 2,000 units. So to think um, just Sally could have over 1,000 units, given what we've seen. And what we've seen, by the way, is we've seen success in very different types of markets, right? This isn't just working in um, Midtown New York. This works in places like uh, everywhere from Brooklyn, Harlem, New Jersey, Fairfield, Connecticut, down to Port St. Lucie or Brickell. I mean, that's a pretty big um, diversification of the type of customer. So there's nothing that from what we've seen from, from 75, 80 locations, uh, it, to me, it's just a matter of, of executing. And that's really difficult in this business, right? Like we can't grow as fast as other traditional chains have. I think the white space is there, but because of the difficulty of operations, we do have, it, it will take a little more time. And so how, how, how do you think about that as far as uh, potentially franchising it? And then maybe if you could talk about different, different potential store formats as far as like what different uh, embodiment of like a drive-through only or just other types of formats and where, the, where, where you might look to expand. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think drive-through is in play um, for sure for us. Um, so I, I won't give a specific date, but I would be surprised next year if we don't have a drive-through open. Um, I don't see us really franchising for the next um, two years. I think there is a, a, a time and a place potentially for franchising, but not in... Um, the immediate future, given the operational complexities of what we're doing, and also, frankly, wanting to own um, the business model ourselves. And, you know, franchise organization is very different than running essentially a restaurant company. Um, and so I don't think that's going to be a form of expansion. In terms of geography, we found it, you know, we just opened in Boston, um, which is, has been great. And so essentially, we're in all over the Northeast at this point. You know, we're in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Long Island, New York City. And there's a lot of white space in those markets that will continue to densify. Um, and, you know, Florida has 17 restaurants and probably could have close to 100. So I think we have our hands full in the markets we're in for the next year or two. Um, but clearly there's other markets that we think we would do well. It's just going to take a little time to get to them. And then thinking about uh, maybe non-traditional formats like maybe ghost kitchens or pickup only, digital only kind of depots. What are your thoughts on the potential there? I haven't been too attracted to ghost kitchens personally. Um, I think for certain, like to me, there are three scenarios where it makes sense. One is you're doing so much sales, like a Chick-fil-A or a Starbucks, for example, that like you just can't deal with digital orders and you need a new, um, and it validates 
another location, but you don't want to have a physical footprint nearby. You want a ghost kitchen to take care of that. That makes complete sense to me. We've just, you know, had a situation where we've been opening more physical locations so aggressively that it's relieved some of that demand naturally without needing a ghost kitchen. The other scenario is I want to have my brand in LA where we don't exist today. And I want to do it quickly. Um, I'm going to open ghost kitchens and start to offer this product on third party and our native for those who have seen us before in other markets. I don't, that's a, that's a tough game to play in my opinion. And I think it's really tough to establish a brand to drive enough revenue in those situations. But then there is another scenario where just salad has almost 35 locations in the whole New York City area. We don't have a location in Long Island City. We've struggled to find a, the right location there. Do we just open a ghost kitchen? Because we clearly have huge brand recognition. Um, there's a market for us. It might or might not validate a large investment in a restaurant chain. Those are scenarios where it might um, make sense, but our focus has been more on just opening yeah. new, new restaurants for us. Makes a lot of sense. I think like in a market like LA, doing a ghost kitchen without first opening a brick and mortar would be really, really tough. Uh, but something like Long Island City makes a lot of sense with commuters coming into the city, seeing your brand, being able to touch and feel the physical product through the stores and then going back home and then ordering it on their phone. Yeah. And, and, and it's also like an example of a market where it just might not be worth the investment of a restaurant itself. But, right. it, but there is there is decent demand. Um, I'd love for you to talk um, now about, you know, you're, you become a certified B Corp. I'd love to have you talk about the sustainability uh, angle of Just Salad and what you, the work you've done around uh, reusable containers and kind of the consumer behavior that, you know, you've kind of, uh, this flywheel that you've kind of started to uh, incentivize people to take around bringing their containers to the store and how that all works. Yeah, so uh, at my reasonable bowl here, we have a just salad in our building. Um, but uh, we started day one um, with this. Um, and way, the way it works is as a customer, you pay a dollar for this. And every time you bring back and reuse your bowl, you get a free topping like avocado, which is about $2 of, of value. So on your first reuse, you're saving money. And I think the incentive plan is a huge part of its success and it has been successful. Um, roughly 10% um, of our in-store customers um, reuse the bowl. And um, it's a huge part of our uh, brand and our own internal guiding light and, and North Star. So, um, after one reuse, we start a uh, customer uh, starts to reduce their carbon impact. And it's also, you know, from a, a again, from a brand perspective, when it's sitting on your desk, it's also a nice reminder of where uh, you should consider going for, for lunch or dinner. So it's been a huge part, but it's also kind of been the gateway to us of exploring other ways we can be a leader in sustainability in the restaurant space as well. Really interesting. Have you done any analysis to understand the retentiveness of those customers over the other, the rest of the cohorts? It's not digitized, right? So we actually 
are not tracking individual users at this point, which is an ongoing. That's why we have a chief technology officer that started a couple weeks ago. We're, we're really looking forward to um, being able to have much better data on it. But we do know that um, our reusable bull customers do come more frequently than our typical customer, even our native um, web and app customers on tests that we've done, but we don't have exact um, data and we can't track our customers either. And then as far as how are you onboarding them? Are they, is everyone getting prompted with like, Hey, would you like to use this bowl today? Or is it more of like, yeah. you know, you have to see the sign and opt in. So yeah, when the, the biggest thing is we have what we call the reasonable bull shrine, um, which is at the start of every line, it's just salad. Most people that that's our biggest, um, sales tool. And then like I said, 10% of our customers reuse it. So as a customer, when you're coming in and you see other people with this, you ask about it. And that's also a sales tool. And then the last line is um, when our um, team members have time, especially what we call our name taker, they will also um, explain how it works to customers as well. But it's quite, it's quite organic how, it, how most you know, reasonable bull sales have happened. And where are you looking to take this, I guess, to the next level yeah i mean i think at some point we'd like to digitize it and make sure that we can um uh communicate digitally with our reusable customers and um track how often um they're reusing or not reusing um and learn more about that customer but in the meantime um with 50 percent of our sales of being digital since COVID, and it's been pretty sticky there uh, we've rolled out the um, Bring Back Bowl program, which is a separate reusable bowl program for pickup orders. And we're testing that at about 10 stores. And that allows someone on our app to just swipe right mm -hmm. and basically get their order in a green reusable bowl to which they would then, on their next pickup order, drop off their used reusable bowl and then it's professionally um, cleaned overnight. Very cool. And reused. So, so this is like my bowl. This is what they call a closed loop, closed loop program, which you own it. No one else ever touches this. This is my bowl only. And then for pickup and digital, uh, it's an open loop program, um, which we're testing as well. And is there a third party that you need to do any of that uh, when it comes to the washing or any, any of those activities? No, not at this point because... Um, Candidly, the amount of volume on it isn't such that we need to have a third party for professional cleaning. We can, you know, sanitize it the way we uh, do with all our, our, our other products. Um, but I think if it were to take off, that would be a consideration if there was capacity limitations on the cleaning side. Yeah, I know, I know there's also like on the collection side, a lot of companies like Dispatch Goods. And uh, I just did an interview recently with Topanga.io that's doing this on college campuses. Um, Definitely interesting angles and different parts of this uh, whole ecosystem that is uh, very much still emerging. Yeah, and Mil MilPal actually just did a pretty cool um, reusable program as well um, that they're that they've rolled out that we're testing with them also. I forgot that they were still around, but um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, they're doing, they're doing, I think they're doing well. <laughs> Got to revisit that. So. Um, and then can you talk about kind of on the content side, obviously a lot of change, sweet, sweet green, Chipotle, 
even grocery stores like Erwan have all gone crazy over content and influencers creating their own items on their menus. Uh, you've worked with uh, various brands and influencers as well. Uh, on your website right now, it seems to be promoting one, uh, a really cool partnership with Sesame Street. I guess like what, what are you looking, you know, what does success look like for these kinds of partnerships? What have you seen work and not work? And how are you yeah. picking these partners? We, we, I mean, we, at, we have pretty, I guess, maybe when you're looking at a website, it looks pretty random. I swear, who we're partnering with, you know, you see Grillo's Pickles next to Motivan, <laughs> next to Sesame Street. Um, but there, we look at partnerships in, in kind of three buckets. There's like ingredient partnerships. So we want to add a pickle to our buffalo cauliflower salad. What's a great pickle company to team up with that would be cool, fun, brand enhancing for both, um, and a product our, our customers would be excited. Grillo's Pickles is like an example of that. Mm. Or we want to do more around regenerative agriculture. Who's a leader in that space? There's a company called Plenty. And we reached out to them um, and we now work with them on three different um, ingredients. And we've highlighted that partnership um, in the past. And the purpose of that is, is literally awareness to our customer um, brand enhancement. It's not about necessarily trying to sell more chickpeas or pickles. And then there's like um, culinary partnerships where we genuinely let, get a lot of great ideas from partnering um, with different influencers or culinary stars. And so like right now we have one with Mona Van, we're doing one next year with um, Mark Forgione. And you know that's about continuing to up our culinary game, learn and um, have cool brand partnerships there. And then there's global partnerships like Sesame Street, which you mentioned, which you know, for me, it's been the most exciting and fun partnership. I have three kids. They're obsessed with it. I actually should have worn this um, today, my Cookie Monster hat. Uh, nice. But um, yeah, no, it's been pretty, pretty fun. And it was, a, I couldn't think of a better way to launch a kid's menu than with Sesame Street. But it, it's, it's a little bit less about um, sales per se and more about continuing to upgrade the product and, and the brand. And, and demographically like this, you know, you, you, you know, have a lot of like families with kids and this is kind of the insight that unlocks that Sesame street par partnership. What do you, what do you mean? That's the end because I have, because I have kids. No, not I know you. That I'm Sesame just saying would you, be cool for, the, ju for kids. the just salad demographic is uh, a lot of families. I guess, like, how do you go about oh, like taking your your, yeah. your demographics and like translating that to a Mona van or, you know, wh whoever? Well, that's a, it. Goes back. It goes back to just listening to the customer. Like, if we we've opened more suburban locations, we get a lot from our own teammates and our customers and reviews. Hey, I love just salad. I wish I had a kids menu. And you start to hear that enough from your employees and your customers that you realize you need to take action quick. It's it's amazing what you'll what you'll find. Like listening to our customer is what kind of guides us, um, probably more than anything else, in terms of where we go from a brand partnership and um, culinary product side. Got it. And uh, you mentioned plenty. Are you referring to the vertical farm company that I did a whole teardown on? No, no, not not them. Actually, <laughs> it was another company. Yeah. Ironically named that. It's called Plenty. We work with Gotham Greens, which is more. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know Gotham I'm Greens, Google and I'm a big, I'm a big fan sure. of Gotham Greens. But so you're saying you're working with a regenerative 
protein company or is it just a agriculture? No, no, re, re, just regenerative agriculture. Okay. It's um, more on the grain side. Okay. Very cool. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Kind of as we come towards the end, uh, I'd love for you to just, uh, you know, put your thinking cap on and just think about the next 10 years. Uh, what do you think the modern just salad will look like in that period? And what do you think the consumer is going to demand from you and your competitors? Um, yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, and candidly, I, I don't, I'm just being completely honest, I'm more thinking um, one to three years out, not typically 10. But I think um, as I visualize it, I, I do believe we're essentially going to be densifying America for the next 10 years. And if you look out 10 years from now, uh, we'll have a lot of drive throughs. Um, we'll be in a potentially a traditional fast food format, but our product will continue um, to be elevated from both the culinary and a, and a um, freshness perspective. So I think as you walk in five, 10 years out, um, I don't think there'll be a lot of customers. I think it'll be overwhelmingly digital and um, cars, um, hopefully self-driving electric <laughs> cars. Um, but I think, and I think there'll be drones picking up our, um, our digital orders as well. Um, but yeah, in terms from a product perspective, uh, I, I think it just remains to just execution at a high level is going to be most important versus necessarily, um, innovating into new, new product lines. Okay. Well, thank you for providing your, uh, you know, firsthand insight into um, everything that's involved in, in operating a modern salad chain. Really appreciate your your perspective, and uh, we'll be following along very closely. So, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Oh, wait, we didn't uh, promote your. Uh, t you can tell people if they want to your website or your socials, all that stuff. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Oh no, just just salad dot com, um, and we're on. Uh, Instagram and TikTok as at just salad um, as well. So okay. um, that's I guess that's as good. I, I need to improve my um, sales pitch there <laughs> at the end. TikTok is uh, I didn't expect that one. So okay, then I have to check that out. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.